Your job is to report. Your job is not to repeat. You can go to a press conference and repeat accurately, word for word, everything a president, a mayor, or a pope says. But if you don't do that watchdog reporting, if you don't provide some of that fact checking, if you don't provide the other side to get that balance, you're not doing the job that you're doing. You're listening to The Media Narrative. I'm Rob Hochschild. This is a show featuring journalists talking about how they work, the stories they report, and the challenges of the job. Lynn Washington has worked as a reporter for nearly 50 years. In our last episode, he talked about the mayhem and challenges of covering the move bombing in Philadelphia in 1985. You'll now hear the second part of that conversation during which Lynn Washington talks about reverberations of that incident in today's world. As we jump back in, he's addressing the state of things in the relationship between the legal system and African-Americans. It would be factually inaccurate to say there's been absolutely no progress, but in a substantial way, there's been no progress in that there is still a fundamental denial that we have a problem with institutional racism. Right now, there's a focus on police and policing, but let's understand Abuse of policing operates in a larger environment. If prosecutors refuse to hold police accountable and that encourages the police to do what they're doing. So prosecutors are playing a role in this. Judges who give police the benefit of the doubt when they don't deserve it, they're contributing to it. And let's not let the citizenry off. The few, and I emphasize the few abusive policing cases that actually get in front of a jury, the juries will believe the craziest nonsensical defense. So let me just give you a quick timeline. In 1951, a group of Americans filed a petition with the United Nations Human Relations Commission charging the United States government with committing genocide against Negroes. That's what black people were known back then. The US government, instead of taking action in trying to correct the abuses that they had delineated in ugly detail uh, in that petition, they went after the signers of the petition to the point where they took the passports away from the people so they couldn't formally present it to the United Nations. That led to a lawsuit that gave everybody in America more rights to travel abroad under passports. Let me flash forward to the, the decade of the 60s. You know, in the 60s, there were a lot of urban disturbances. Each one of those urban disturbances was caused by an incident of police brutality. A presidential commission in 1968, the Kerner Commission, laid out a series of reforms for police. Within weeks of that report coming out, it was being ignored. So much so that there was criticism from the civil rights community that you've turned your back on trying to correct this problem. In 2015, months after the incident in Ferguson, Missouri, uh, involving the murder of a guy named Michael Brown, uh, there was a presidential commission put together by the Obama administration called the 21st Century Policing Task Force. They had a lot of recommendations. None of them were followed. One of the first recommendations was police in America need to recognize the ugly history of abuse and see what they could do to at least acknowledge that. It didn't say change it immediately. It said acknowledge that. And we still don't have that. No, what was it? Within the last two weeks, the police commissioner of New York City, in talking to the police 
are saying that we're not the problem. It's the police out, the people out in the street criticizing us. So there's that recalcitrance among police officers, but that is aided and abetted by people in elected office. So now we have a president who's telling police openly, rough them up a little bit. When you're sticking them in the car, ram their head against the side of it. And now he's saying that um, Black Lives Matter is a hate group. The same guy that says they were good people when racists marched across the campus of the University of Virginia shouting the Jews will not replace us, you know, yeah. <laughs> and, 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 and let's protect Confederate monuments. So in some ways we have improved. There have been some black police commissioners. There's one in Philadelphia now, the first black female police commissioner. But institutionally, you can't change those things. When Pete Buttigieg, okay, the, the, the liberal mayor of South Bend, Indiana was running for presidency. His candidacy was, was crippled because it came out that when he came in office, he fired the black police commissioner. There was only a handful of black police in the city anyway. And then despite the fact that those black police officers were going to him telling him about police brutality, council members were going to him telling him about police brutality, the citizens of the city, some of them were telling him about police brutality. He ignored them. And then when he gets on a campaign trail, he says, nobody ever told me anything. You lie. And it cost you a legitimate effort to become the Democratic Party's candidate. Amy Klobuchar, she was the prosecutor in the Minneapolis area. In 1998, Human Rights Watch organization issued a report called Shielded from Justice, where they were looking at police brutality around the country and the reasons why no one takes efforts that are taken to really corral police brutality. They looked at 14 cities. One of them was Philadelphia. One of them was Minneapolis. In the first line of the report on Minneapolis is, the Minneapolis Police Department has a quote unquote, notorious history of police brutality. Who was elected DA for that county in 1998? Amy Klobuchar. And during her tenure of eight years, she brought no lawsuit against the police department or individual police officers, including an incident where there was a charge that could have been brought against the police officer who was now charged with the murder of George Floyd. So the support, either conscientiously or through acquiescence, that is given by the system uh, hasn't really changed. And and for me, that's a, an area of frustration and, and, and something that dashes any hope that I would have. Like you, I'm sure, I'm hoping that we have a new president uh, in January. Let's say we do. Let's say Joe Biden is the new president of the United States. Considering everything you just said, thank you for breaking that down really clearly. It's going to take a lot of work and a lot of time to start to change the this institutional racism. What do you think would be some key steps for a new administration, new politicians, people who run city governments, what sorts of work would lie ahead of them if we're gonna start changing things for the better? Everybody loves to quote Dr. Martin Luther King. And they love to quote from his, I have a dream speech. That speech was about 50 paragraphs long. I have a dream is one paragraph. Before he got to his dream, he talked about American nightmare where he twice, twice in that speech 
criticize police brutality. One of the things that Dr. King said is America, just be true to what you say on paper. And on paper is that no one's against, no one's above the law. We treat everybody equally. Everybody who is a citizen of the United States is entitled to all of the protections of the constitution. If that in fact happens, then a lot of these problems with institutional racism, including abusive policing, could be dissipated. Police officers need to be held accountable for when they use excessive force. The law authorizes police to use force. It does not authorize them to use excessive force. So when they use excessive force, then they need to be held accountable the same way as an individual citizen. The money that we put into policing, some of that should be redirected to social causes. When you look at, say, that 1968 Kerner Commission report, when you look at that 21st century uh, policing that the Obama administration put out, each of them are very clear that you can't corral crime and violence until you address issues of poverty. We need to address the income inequities in the United States that have now extended way beyond race. It's into definitely into class and particularly with the economic dislocations of the pandemic. So what should a new president do? They need to make sure that the law is fully and fairly enforced against everybody, including people who occupy the Oval Office. We have these problems in the United States today where we have a president who is absolutely manipulating the Constitution by putting these federal agents in cities where they don't want it because he has been allowed to have a lawless reign. He was impeached by the House of Representatives for improprieties that he did overseas to try to help his reelection. And the US Senate, the Republicans specifically, abdicated their constitutional responsibility to hold a president accountable when they didn't hold a trial. How do you have a fulfillment of a constitutional provision that the Senate is the one where there's supposed to be a trial for impeachment and you declare you're not gonna hold any have any witnesses? And you come in, you make a case, you make a case, and we'll decide it was a whitewash. And after that was over, the lawless president got even more lawless. So if we just follow the law as it says, then a lot of things will change. And again, if you look at history and look at it closely, Black people have been saying since the outset of this country, just give us the same thing that you give to everybody else. In 1799, 75 Black leaders in Philadelphia sent a petition to Congress. Congress was sitting in the United States, in Philadelphia at the time. Washington, D.C. was still being built. Philadelphia was the national capital. These Black people in their very eloquent petition said, look, if the words of the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution have any meaning, then we, as citizens and taxpayers, should have the same rights that you have. That petition asked for two things. One, it asked for a gradual abolition of slavery. And they said that we will help our dejected brothers and sisters become citizens. Just free them and we'll take care of them. And the second one, they were asking for protection from abuses of the Fugitive Slave Act. Slave catchers would come to Philadelphia, capture free blacks and take them back into slavery. This was 1799. 
The Congress rejected it. One of the congresspersons who was uh, led the charge to reject it was a guy from South Carolina. And he jumped up and says, this petition is invalid because we know that Negroes can't write. The Quakers wrote it for him. When Obama did his, um, his State of the Union, who jumps up and says, you lied and walked out? Hey, congressman from South Carolina. We have ignored this problem for decades and we're suffering the whirlwind of it. In, what was it, 1852, when uh, Frederick Douglass gave his famous uh, speech, what is 4th of July to the colored American? He said to America, listen, this thing of racism is like a serpent wrapped around the soul of America. Get it out or we're gonna have problems forever. Well, they didn't listen to Frederick Douglass. They didn't listen to Martin Luther King. They definitely didn't listen to the Malcolm X's or the Marcus Garvey's, and we have the problems that we now have today. One of the things that I have realized that I think a lot of us have realized is what you just said, the quote from Frederick Douglass about the serpent and the quote from Dr. King about if America just adheres to its own principles. That, I think, is what a lot of us who are not African-American, who are not people of color, have come to realize a little more clearly in the last few years. We have seen the manifestation of what those two men were talking about now right in front of us. And now we're on the verge of will he or won't he get reelected and all of what that implies. Uh, it's a pretty scary moment. And it really does seem like the enslavement of African-Americans going back to 1619 is right in the middle of all of this and it's it's really uh it's been clarifying it the one little thing that gives me hope is that it does seem like a lot of us have um realized what's really caused the situation we're in right now one thing that uh, amazes me still about what we've spent most of our time talking about today is that this disaster that happened in philadelphia 35 years ago it seems as though it's been mostly forgotten even though what we saw what we see happening in american cities right now feels like it could be an incremental step towards something like what we saw on osage avenue why has this event of 1985 been so forgotten about 35 years later it was clearly a, a an ugly incident it was one that people would want to forget because they would not want to know and embrace the fact that the city of Philadelphia did something so outrageous. No one was even prosecuted for any event that happened on May 13th, 1985. The only two people who ended up doing prison time was the lone surviving uh, move adult, Ramona Africa. She was convicted of conspiracy and terroristic threats did her full seven years because her probation, her parole was conditioned on renouncing move, which was a violation of First Amendment rights, your right to association. The other person that went to jail was the first developer that they brought in to rebuild the homes. And they, they got him for stealing money. He bought, goes out and buys a Jaguar and he takes his girlfriend on a vacation in the Bahamas. Police officers who were caught lying to the grand jury, that's called perjury. They weren't prosecuted. The prosecutors, the local prosecutors, manipulated the law saying there was no criminal intent, so they couldn't prosecute any police officers for the bombing and the burning. There are two laws that don't require an intent to do bad on the outset, 
But if you do something, if, if what you do gives a bad result, then you can be prosecuted. Those two charges are reckless endangerment and risking a catastrophe. Is it not reckless to drop a bomb on a house containing children that you know the bomb's gonna blow up a five gallon can of gasoline? And then risking a catastrophe, if you see a fire that's going from a blaze to inferno and you do nothing you make a conscious decision to let the fire burn, and that fire ends up killing 11 people, burning down 61 homes, and leaving 250 people uh, homeless. That's a catastrophe. So there were two charges that could have been brought, but they they didn't do it. So we're we're at this moment where America has to come face to face with: Are we truly a nation of laws? Do we truly cherish the democracy that we all extol? Or are we going to, you know, continue to slip down into this craziness that the current occupant of the White House has initiated? I'm really heartened by the fact that more people are out there protesting against this. It's now not just Black people or with some um, with some Latinos and, and a few whites. It's people who never thought that they would be engaged in this. When you look at Portland, when the federal uh, agents came out, more and more people came out. You saw mothers and grandmothers locking arms and getting tear gassed. But, you know, on the one hand, that's a point of elation that there are more people who are seeing that we are now fighting for the soul of America. But it's also disheartening that we have these expressions of condemnation coming out of Washington, D.C. The whole Democratic side of Congress should have been on an airplane, chartered an airplane so you don't have to worry about getting corona and flying out to Portland and standing there as witness that we're not going to allow this to happen. Let them tear gas Chuck Schumer and, and, and Nancy Pelosi. There should be more uh, uproar about it, but you know maybe that's coming. Uh, when they come to a neighborhood near you. <laughs> I like that idea. I hope something like that does happen. I just have one last question I want to ask you. You teach journalism students now at Temple University in Philadelphia. When you talk to them, what do you put front and center for them to learn about as aspiring journalists? And what do you wish you knew back then that you know now after all these years? And how do you package that in your classes to them? To give you a, a quick response, I frame a lot of my classes around the ethics codes that cover journalism. The Society of Professional Journalists Ethics Code the Ethics Code for the Radio, TV, Digital News Association, the uh, uh, Associated Press uh, Managing Editors Association. So I try to instill in the aspiring journalists to operate in an ethical manner. And all of those ethics codes all begin with, you have an ethical duty to, to be accurate. So I say facts first. You know, we, journalists always, uh, a, a lot of, talk about, yeah, well, we're there for truth. Well, your truth and my truth may be different, but facts are facts. So I emphasize the need for facts. The other thing that I emphasize is that we as journalists have a constitutional duty. Why there is that press freedom in the First Amendment is because the founders of the United States had a specific mission for the fourth estate. Our government is built on checks and balances. Congress checks the executive 
and the courts check the executive and Congress. But who checks the checkers? That freedom of the press is the press making sure that Congress, the courts, and the president, as well as powerful institutions in our society, are operating in the best interest of the citizenry. So you as a, a journalist have a duty to perform consistent with what your constitutional right is given to you to do. And what is that? Well, our democracy is predicated on what? An informed electorate. This is not college, this is civics from high school and junior high school. So your job as a reporter is to provide information. But there's a second role that, that journalists should have, and that is serving as a watchdog, that checker role. And you need to get that in your heart, that it is your job. Your job is to report. Your job is not to repeat. You can go to a press conference and repeat accurately, word for word, everything a president, a mayor, or a pope says. But if you don't do that watchdog reporting, if you don't provide some of that fact checking, if you don't provide the other side to get that balance, you're not doing the job that you're doing. So I try to instill uh, ethical adherence in journalists, but I also try to let them know of their constitutional duty. There's only a few professions that are enumerated in the Constitution of the United States. One of them is journalists. We have a heck of a duty. We do not need to wrap ourselves in a flag and say we have press freedom when we trash freedom of speech, when we, pra when we trash uh, the right to present grievances to government, AKA protests. So how is it that we are upstanding in doing our duty when we disrespect the rights of others by not reporting accurately and honestly and fulfilling our constitutional mission? Lynn Washington, thank you so much. That 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 is a whole other subject that we could delve into uh, for another conversation. Uh, I really appreciate all the time today. Thank you for for going back and reflecting on events of back then and and giving us a frame to look at what's happening right now. I really appreciate it. Rob, thank you so much, and I appreciate your interest in this. And it's it's very important for people to understand how journalists and journalism works. There is a provision in the Society of Professional Journalists Ethics Code that says that journalists are supposed to let the public know how the media works. You're fulfilling that uh, suggestion. Lynn Washington has worked for news outlets from CNN to the Philadelphia Daily News and reported from all over the world. He teaches journalism at Temple University in Philadelphia. Listen to the prior episode of this podcast for a deeper dive with Lynn Washington on the move bombing in Philadelphia. Please subscribe to the newsletter and podcast at themedianarrative.com. Thanks for listening. I'm Rob Hochschild.